Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 25 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday, the 21st of July. And Leon, this week, we've got a really interesting chat with a couple of guys from RMIT. That's right. We're talking to Dominic Pellegrino, who's the director of Value My Business, and Professor Cosmos Smyrnios from RMIT's School of Management. And they're going to be talking to us all about the collaboration of RMIT and Value My Business. And they've launched a co-branded index of business value multiples. Yeah, dealing mostly with small to medium business, aren't they? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then after that, we're going to discuss economic issues with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. That's right. He's going to be talking to us all about the issues of the government trying to introduce competition among the banks. Yeah, the banks have got a bit of heat on them at the moment, haven't they? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay, let's listen to the guys from RMIT. Dominic, tell us about Value My Business. Well, Value My Business came into existence about 11 years ago through its sister company, BizExchange, that was an online portal for buying and selling businesses. And through that process, they realized that there was an opportunity within the market to create a report that details the business value of small to medium enterprises, anything from less than 500,000 to 15 million. The report has now been in publication for, as I said, 11 years. We produce four reports a year and we uh, provide uh, what is an earnings multiple of SMEs uh, across 19 industry categories. What categories are we talking about here? Manufacturing, professional services, real estate, the whole uh, gamut of of industry that is in accordance with the ANZIC codes. And this actually helps companies place a valuation on their... Yeah, the SME market is essentially a non-transparent market. Uh, Most transactions are done privately. And so unlike the ASX, where you can look at the price of a stock on a minute by minute basis, the SME market is very much a hidden market. And so what we're trying to do is shed some light on that market by providing an earnings multiple of different businesses of similar size across those 19 industries. So this has been going for 11 years. 11 years, yes. And after 11 years, there was a a view of the board that it was time to review the whole business model and see whether A, we're still relevant and B, how can we enhance what we've been doing in a way that is credible and adds value. So then you brought in RMIT, did you not? Well, part of that process was to look at uh, the report. The report has been going, as I said, for 11 years, and it's around 20 pages long. We've shortened that report to about seven or eight pages. The data has actually increased. The commentary has increased. But a lot of the information that is readily available on our website has just been removed. Uh, And that data is really information to do with business valuing, the, the factors that affect value. Rather than replicate that every quarter, we've just simply left it on our website and we only focus on the the data. So, Cosmos Smirnoff, you've been doing the research into this. It's changed a lot of things, hasn't it? So we were actually approached by Value My Business to, you know, work on the research side as well as the report. And one of the reasons why Value My Business came and approached me was because of my background in family business. So would a lot of these businesses being assessed by Value My Business be family businesses? Well, the research side of things relates to the Value My Business product and multiples. But the focus or the emphasis of our work has been on enhancing the veracity of the data 
and also providing alternative statistics that can actually be utilised as part of the quarterly reports. Small business is traditionally more difficult to codify and do research because of its wide variance, isn't it? As we know, you can have one sample that, if it's small, for example, would differ very differently to another small cohort of small to medium enterprises. So this is where it has been really important as researchers to develop a large database. This is fascinating because even within sectors, there's enormous variation from business to business, and they should be working in the same sector, like, for example, retail or professional services, and they could be two very different kinds of businesses. How do you actually evaluate that? Well, that's a rather insightful comment. That is part of the problem. So what we do is we use publicly available information and we source thousands of businesses to arrive at multiples for industry categories and business sizes. We don't pretend to provide a definitive value of what a business is worth. We only provide an indication or a benchmark. We recommend, and it's part of our thesis, is that business owners should undertake a full business valuation, which takes into consideration all the things you've just mentioned, the reliability of the earnings, the dependence of the owner, any intellectual property they might have, uh, the competitive environment within which they operate. All those things affect the earnings ability of a company, and they vary from company to company, sector to sector. We can't differentiate that, not at the moment anyway, but what we do is we basically look at the overall universe of small to medium enterprises and we provide as I said a guide of what the business is worth. Now we provide three ranges. We have a, a low range, a medium or mean, and we've just introduced a median and as well as the high. So that really in a sense takes into consideration the fact that we have got a, a wide dispersed range of business values even within business sectors. Having this diverse range of statistics that Dominic has just outlined really came out of the discussions with RMIT University. So that is yet another way in which we've been able to provide value you know, to industry. When you're talking about small to medium enterprises, where's the bottom and where's the top in terms of employees or capitalization? Where do you fit into this very diverse area? We define a business by its size, which is in turn defined by its turnover. So we have four categories, zero to 500,000, 500 to a million, million to five, five to 15. Gary, I think you're touching on yet another really important point. There are a number of different ways of categorizing SMEs. Our politicians have been categorizing them in terms of their revenue. You know, what makes a small or medium-sized uh, company? But we also know that the Australian Bureau of Statistics categorises businesses based on number of employees. You know, from our micro uh, enterprises, which are less than five employees, small businesses are those that employ fewer than 20 and then the medium-sized businesses employ between 20 and 200, as long as they're not uh, manufacturing firms. So that's just an example. Then turnover might be more accurate, or would it be more accurate in this day and age when you can have a firm with maybe four people in the digital economy making a large amount of money? Does that change the shape of what you're doing? I think that's a very insightful point. Because our information is publicly available, we're not able to definitively define a business by the number of its employees or any other metric. The metric that we use primarily uh, and that is easily available is turnover. But you're right, in this digital age, you don't need as many employees to create the same level of turnover. 
fascinating thing to watch and see how this develops. Cosmos and Dominic, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So there you are, it's sort of charting the small to medium business people. Well, I think that sort of offering would be very important for small businesses out in the marketplace, looking at how to value their business so that they can sell them and move on. Well, not only that, but small to medium business is really the biggest part of uh, Australian um, industry and commerce, isn't it? That's right. That's right. That's right. So what they're offering is really, really important. I think people should listen to that. Yep. And now Sinclair. Sinclair Davidson, the government is talking about increasing competition with banks. They have bringing in legislation that will allow all deposit-taking institutions to call themselves banks, regardless of size. The federal budget flagged an open banking regime. Uh, What's your view about competition in the banking sector? I think this is an incredibly complex issue that probably needs to be very carefully thought out and managed over a long period of time. And I think, unfortunately, we probably find that um, it sounds fantastic to be very popular. People sort of think that the banks are, are non-competitive or even anti-competitive. And so it, it becomes a, a populist kind of measure for the government to be involved in. But in actual fact, I think a lot of careful thought needs to go into it, a lot of careful demarcation as to what is and isn't a bank. And I think a lot of public education needs to occur long before we can actually see any really substantive policy come out of all all of this. Do we need more competition with the banks? Probably not. People would be surprised to discover that the Australian banking system is already very highly competitive. Unfortunately, what happens is people tend to view competition in terms of account. So we count the number of big banks and there's four big banks and they've got about, let's say, 70 to 80 percent of the market. So therefore we say, gee, we've got a top four ratio of 80 percent and this is sort of uncompetitive. Whereas people tend to ignore the actual rivalry that goes on between those institutions. So we have got four very big banks offering a range of products to all sorts of people. And then we've got a very large number of smaller players, building societies, credit unions, and so on, that also operate in this place. So you'd actually find that Australians' banking needs are well met, well serviced, and that in actual fact, if it comes to a measure of rivalry in the Australian banking market, we don't need more competition amongst existing players. I think the excitement comes in, of course, is entry of new products and new players into the market. Now, I think it needs to be easier for new entrants to come into the market, especially in the area of payment systems and digital money. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of movement and excitement in the next while. Are we talking about, say, competition, real competition coming in in the form of, say, Apple or Google setting up a bank here? Certainly setting up payment systems. Um, I think the, the idea of people walking around with actual, I was going to say paper money, but in actual fact, plastic money in terms of, of notes and coins in their pockets um, is certainly something that, that's dying. People now very often pay by card, either debit card or credit card. And of course, a lot of banking institutions now give you a single piece of plastic that contains access to both your debit account and your credit account. Um, but I think uh, apps on people's phones. So the Apples, the Samsungs, the Googles of the world will be coming in with payment systems that um, 
are going to make things very convenient for people. Now, where competition has been stifled at the moment is that the ACCC haven't allowed the existing banks to actually work together to offer their own payment system. So while they say, oh, gee, our big four banks want to work together to compete with Apple, and that's cartel and anti-competitive, in actual fact, that would be more competitive because ultimately competition is about benefiting consumers, making it easier for people to do things, not necessarily just be mean and nasty to companies and of course people don't like the banks so therefore um, government policy that sort of makes things difficult for them may be politically popular but certainly not economically wise. So the ACCC should allow the big four banks to work together even if that's seen as a cartel to compete with Apple. With Apple and Samsung and all these other organizations, yes. It's not a case of being a cartel. It's a case of coming together to offer a better product. So, for example, at the moment, if, if, if you have a look at ACCC rules, if you go to an ATM and you want to draw money out, you've got to go to your own machine to draw money out as opposed to going to any bank machine to draw money out because you pay a higher fee. Now, um, if the banks could work together to operate a single ATM mechanism, of course, that would benefit consumers. But from the ACCC's perspective, that's viewed as being anti-competitive, which, of course, is a uh, a silly thing, which undermines uh, consumer satisfaction in the economy. How do you think uh, the banks would respond to the prospect of an Apple coming into the market? I mean, the the banks have been very, very defensive about fintechs, for example, and they've been acquiring fintechs and they've been trying to work with fintechs, uh, but the banks have enormous legacy systems, which means they can't possibly compete with fintechs. How would they possibly compete with an Apple? Well, I would hope that they would compete vigorously because Apple would certainly come in and and take a large slice of the market pretty quickly if they were offering a very convenient payment mechanism. I mean, most people walk around with a phone in their pocket and having a phone in your pocket is certainly going to be a lot safer than having uh, wallets in your pocket, having cash in your pocket. So I, I would hope that the banks would respond vigorously. Um, I know that they are, are investing a lot of money in their, in their back office operations. Um, this is going to be very expensive for them. Of course, they've got to recoup those costs. But ultimately, by responding vigorously, that would lead to lower costs and prices for uh, consumers, allowing people to do more with their money and, in actual fact, as it turns out, pay lower fees for what they do. I suspect the banks would end up making a lot of money out of this. But, of course, they would make it out of spreading over a bigger market charging lower fees overall. So it's quite expensive to operate a bank account. And, of course, the the new technology is going to make it cheaper to do that. Well, the wonderful thing about that is it would see banks being transformed from banks into technology companies, wouldn't it? Yes, and bear in mind that banking is itself a technology business because we may not think of it, you know, we, we think of sort of strong rooms and bullion and assets locked away. But in actual fact, banks for a long time actually want to keep their assets turning over. Their main business is, is borrowing short and lending long. So in actual fact, they make use of technology such as the ledger. Now, of course, we are so familiar with the common ledger that we don't think of it as being a cutting edge technology. But in actual fact, it is 
is a very sophisticated technology and things like the blockchain have actually taken that ledger to a much higher level and of course the banks want to be on top of that as well. I mean I think blockchaining the financial sector of the economy is going to be the thing that we see happening next which of course does add a lot of technological investment into it but it is really a variation on the theme of things that they are doing already. They, they keep extensive records and that is going to be the next record keeping technology that comes along. And that would make it so much more efficient, wouldn't it? You would think so. There are challenges to how you actually employ the blockchain. A a lot of people worry about excessive electricity use. To to a large extent, you can build your own subchains and you can do things differently. But the issue for the banks, I think, is that they have enormous legacy systems and banks don't change that easily. They are big institutions. Yes, they are, but they're also facing very, very nimble, disruptive competitors. And banks don't change voluntarily, but of course, to be fair, nobody changes voluntarily. So uh, um, I think if, if they want to actually survive and thrive, they are going to have to move very rapidly into the space. And to be fair to the banks, of course, there is a great deal of misunderstanding around new technology, around what can and can't be done, and regulators also change very slowly. So we actually have a lack of regulation in the space that more or less creates space for the banks to move into. So we're going to have to see a massive transformation around our regulatory system as well as in in our banking system. But I I think it will come and I think people will realize the benefits of this massive efficiency and transaction cost reducing technology that's going to come along. So the government needs to fully embrace more competition in the sector I think the government needs to think carefully about what it understands by the term competition, and I think the government needs to think very carefully about how it wants to regulate the the particular sector. I think regulation as a business bashing exercise needs to be abandoned and actually come along and say, well, okay, how do we want the economy to operate? The government haven't quite moved into the space just yet, so last week they were talking about um, all encrypted systems having to have a back door into them, which of course completely undermines any trust you would have in any such system. So I think that the government doesn't quite understand what this new technology is and how it's going to work. Indeed, and a lot of this uh, push for more competition is on the back of a bank bashing exercise. Yes, and and I think that's a mistake. I think if people have done the wrong thing, and there's a lot of argument that the banks have done the wrong thing in some areas, we have got existing laws, existing regulatory agencies to deal with that. But I actually think that purposefully going out to stymie, undermine, over-regulate and punish the banking system for a whole range of bad reasons is probably bad economic policy and is certainly not going to deliver the kind of financial market efficiency that a Australia needs to go forward. Because those reasons are basically political because the opposition has been calling for a royal commission into the banking yes, sector. Yes, and I think the idea of undermining a sector of the economy that, that, that relies very significantly on trust is actually a mistake and I think both sides of our politics are making a big mistake in that area at the moment. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what do you read, Leon? Well, Sinclair's got a very interesting take on the nature of competition among banks. But as he points out, the government has to work out what it wants or what it means by competition. And are they doing it to introduce competition or is it part of a bank bashing exercise? And that's quite an important issue. 
It very much is. And if we wind up with a lot of very small banks, I think it's going to fragment the market and also open the way to banks that aren't perhaps as solid and even as honest as they ought to be. Well, not only that, but banks could be approaching their Uber moment at the moment. I noticed there was an interview in Bloomberg with the ex-manager of Barclays was saying uh, banks could be approaching their Kodak moment because you're going to have a whole lot of uh, fintechs competing with them. And uh, banks have enormous legacy systems, and that's quite an issue. Also add to that the prospect of a company like Apple or Google setting up a bank. Or Telstra in Australia could easily do it. That's right. Mm. And then, of course, there's the weight on the regulator, a lot more people to keep an eye on. That's right, indeed. So it's uh, all in the future, though. And meantime, Leon, we have the news. That's right, Gary. And first, a pickup in China's factories saw the gross domestic product of Australia's biggest trading partner rising 6.9% in the second quarter from a year before. Now, the figures showed China's industrial output rising 7.6% in June from a year before, ahead of the estimated 6.5% increase, and retail sales surged 11% from a year ago, well ahead of the median estimate of 10.6% in the Bloomberg survey. And steel output increased 5.7% in June to a record 73.23 million tonnes, with mills in the world's top producer cranking up production and making solid profits from rallying prices. Now, according to China's statistics bureaus, the data, in their words, provides a solid basis for meeting the full-year growth target of 6.5% or above. Now, what's interesting there, Gary, is that China has come in well above what the world was expecting. That's true, but there is a bit of a worry, apparently, among investors that China's growth still is dependent on credit, and uh, Xi Jinping, the president, is uh, showing signs of clamping down on the easy credit China's had. And that is quite an issue. You're quite right. You're quite right. Now, the other really interesting issue is that US dollar has fallen and bond yields have dived after the Republican health care bill in the Senate collapsed. The US dollar slumped to its lowest level since September before the US election and the 10-year US Treasury yield fell to a three-week low of 2.26%. The ICE US index dollar index, which compares the greenback against half a dozen other currency, was down 0.6% at 94.52%. Now, the failure of the Republican health care plan has raised doubts about President Donald Trump's ability to get his legislative changes, including tax cuts, through the Congress. And if he doesn't get this up, there's a prospect, Gary, that he'll finish in 2017 without any legislation to his credit. Now, analysts say that until now, belief in Donald Trump has underpinned increases in both global equity prices and the dollar. But markets are now losing confidence that Trump will be able to deliver on his promised plans. And meanwhile, the fall in greenback and hawkish comments from the Reserve Bank of Australia has seen the Australian dollar rallying above 79 cents, leaping 1.5% to US 79.18 cents and peaking at 79.43 cents. Now, there is now market speculation, Gary, that the Aussie could push past 80 US cents, reach 85 cents, and that would create problems for the RBA. 
Yeah, exactly right. And, of course, to some extent for our exports because they become more expensive. But I don't think Trump's going to get anything through. His disapproval rating now is 58%, likely to fall further. And, uh, you know, he's achieved nothing in 200 days. That's right. And he's likely to finish off the year without having achieved any legislation. And you know what that's going to mean for equity prices globally. Yeah, exactly right. Disappointment will set in and it could slide down very quickly. That's right. There was a fascinating report from the Grattan Institute this week showing young Australians are facing a future of permanent renters. The figures show that home ownership rates for young Australians, especially 25 to 34-year-olds, has fallen 6% in the last decade alone, and the data shows that home ownership rates are also down by 7% over the past decade for 35 to 44-year-olds. And the Grattan Institute says declining rates of home ownership among 45 to 54-year-olds, which is down 6% since 2006, means it will be harder for them to save for retirement as they would have missed out on the big win windfall games that have come from rising house prices over the past decade, and they would have missed out on the enforced savings vehicle of a mortgage. Now, housing affordability is falling a lot for low-income earners, and according to the Gradient Institute, home ownership rates for 25 to 34-year-olds in the bottom income quintile are down over 30% since 1981. And on the other side of the ledger, those in the top income quintile of 25 to 34-year-olds are almost as likely to own a home as they were 30 years ago. Now, the real culprit here, says the Grattan Institute, are rising house prices, and prices have risen so steeply over the last decade, up 70% in Sydney alone over the past five years, that people who have not been able to afford to buy a house over the past decade by their mid-30s are now unlikely to purchase a home. And that's a further example of the widening gap between the haves and the not-so-haves, and what it means is the changing nature of our once egalitarian society is becoming locked in. That's right. Now, interesting stuff about the RBA. Now, in its minutes from its last board meeting, the Reserve Bank of Australia has indicated there are positive signs ahead for the economy with increased infrastructure spending, good jobs figures and increases in household spending and consumption. But the headline was that it flagged an increase in interest rates to percentage points above the current record low level. According to the minutes of its meeting at the beginning of this month, the RBA flagged a cash rate of 3.5%, above today's 1.5%, with inflation anchored around 2.5%. And the minutes sent the Aussie dollar soaring to a two-year high of 79.04 cents, its highest level since May 2015. And that came after it rallied on Friday. Now, the RBA indicated the increased infrastructure spending would have a positive flow-on effect for the economy. It said the most recent Australian and state government budgets suggested the fiscal policy would be more expansionary in 2017-18 than had previously been expected. And some of this expansion was expected to come from more spending on public infrastructure, particularly in New South Wales. It also noted that infrastructure investment was expected to have significant positive spillovers to other parts of the economy. And it said non-residential building approvals had also risen in recent months. It noted that labour market conditions had improved, but the underemployment rate, measuring the number of part-time workers wanting to work more hours, is still high. And it said there'd been an increase in household spending in the June quarter and a rise in resale sales. So it's looking pretty positive, Gary. Yeah, it does indeed. Um, and we could do with a bit of positive around the place, couldn't we? That's right. But it has sent the Aussie dollar up very, very high. Now, 
According to Deloitte Access Economics, the RBA will not be increasing rates by that much because of a high level of indebtedness. And according to its latest report, Deloitte Access Economics said the home building industry will shrink. And it says the pace of home building is set to shrink further, increasing evidence that gravity may soon start to catch up with the stupidity in housing markets. That's from Deloitte Access Economics partner Chris Richardson. And he said the rest of the world is likely to follow the US Fed in raising interest rates and the RBA will join them in 2018. But he said it's unlikely to raise rates much above the current low level of 1.5% because of the sensitivity of Australian households to rate rises. Yeah, ultimately, of course, the rates have got to rise, but it's going to take very careful management, isn't it? That's right. That's right. That's right. Now, this is something we were discussing with Sinclair. In a move to step up competition in the banking sector, the federal government has introduced legislation that will allow any banking business with an authorised deposit-taking institution or ADI licence to call itself a bank. And that means any business with an ADI will be allowed to call itself a bank regardless of its size. And that's a big change from the existing rule, Gary, that only allows ADIs with capital greater than $50 million to use the term bank. At the same time, the government is broadening the power of the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. It's given APRA the power to collect crucial data on the state of lending in the so-called shadow banking sector. And the explanatory note for the data for legislation says APRA will be able to gather information about, their words, entities who engage in material lending activity irrespective of whether it is their primary business, end quote. And it will allow APRA to create rules affecting individual shadow banks or indeed the entire sector in order to protect financial stability. And without good control, shadow banking can become a serious problem. It's in China as well. And we don't want it down our house. We don't. But the other interesting thing is the concept of introducing competition among the banks. And as we discussed with Sinclair, that's a fascinating issue. Now, Rio Tinto says its iron ore shipments will come in at the lower end of expectations, Gary, because of what it calls accelerated rail maintenance. Rio, which is the world's second largest iron ore exporter, said it shipped 77.7 million tonnes of iron ore from its Pilbara operations in the June quarter. And iron ore shipments from WA will be around 330 million tonnes, slightly down from 330 million to 340 million. And that, again, reflects the rail maintenance to improve track conditions for Rio. But I have to say their automated rail system is fantastic, Gary. Indeed it is, and of course saves them a huge amount of money. But of course, over the top of that, there's the slight worry about how much the Chinese are actually going to buy. That's right. That's right. So let's just watch that space. And finally, the federal court has appointed insolvency manager firm Ferrier Hodgson to examine almost $1 million in fees paid to Cordamentha by Channel 10 in the months before Cordamentha was signed on as the Ailing Network's administrator. And in a ruling in Melbourne, Judge David O'Callaghan made orders appointing Peter Gotthard of Ferrier Hodgson to the role. He reserved the reasons for his decision. Now, legal advice given by law firm Gilbert and Tobin which referred 10 to Cordamentha, will also be investigated. And this followed concerns raised by the Australian Securities Investments Commission about a perceived conflict of interest over the payments, covering more than three months of work between February 28th and June 14, when the 10 board appointed administrators. ASIC 
told the court that Cordamenta's advice to the board before its appointment had given rise to what it called an apprehension of bias, a conflict of interest. Now, the orders were made by consent between Cordamenta and the Australian Securities Investments Commission. An ASIC lawyer, Stuart Maiden, told the court that ASIC didn't contend any bias or conflict of interest had taken place in Cordamenta's appointment, but he said there could be a perception about the work done before 10 officially went into administration on June 14. Now, of course, we remember 10 got into trouble when two of its key shareholders and billionaire backers, News Corp co-chair Lachlan Murdoch and Wynn Corporation owner Bruce Gordon indicated they would not extend their guarantee on a $200 million debt facility to a new $250 million limit. And the pair have since indicated they're working on a rescue plan ahead of the government's changes to Australian media's laws. Yeah, it's all very curious, isn't it, Leon? I mean, the crisis is brought on by Murdoch and Gordon pulling the pin on their support, and then suddenly there they are basically saying uh, they'd like to own it. That's right. Well, (laughs) there's a reason why they pulled their pin on their support, and I think they were anticipating changes in the government media laws. I think they possibly knew about that. And then on top of that, you've got the Amber Harrison drama. That's right, that's right. And, of course, uh, there's talk about Kerry Stokes wanting to get rid of Seven. Of course, in the event of the media laws changing, Rupert Murdoch could be buying Seven. So that's good for News Corporation. Imagine Lachlan Murdoch buying Ten and News Corporation buying <laughs> buying um, <laughs> Seven. Seven. That's right, that's yeah, right. Nothing like a dynasty, Leon. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we're talking to Tim Kremer. He's a co-founder of Zavaza. He's going to be talking to us about an all-in-one professional services automation tool that seamlessly combines time tracking, expense recording, quoting and invoicing with project management. Yes, improving performance and cutting costs. That's right. And that's it from us this week. And we look forward to talking to you next week. In the meantime, you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.